Thank you for joining us on the Desert Life Church podcast. It's our prayer that you encounter God through this message. Now let's join our lead pastor, Pastor Ben Teepe, for an inspiring message. All right, we're going to keep going. How are we? Are we all right? Okay, we don't have our center screen this morning, so instead we've got the whiteboard of destiny. Is that okay? Now, I want you to know that I broke the mold this morning because traditionally in churches, charities, or Christian organizations, the first time somebody goes to write on the whiteboard, the pens never work. Who's ever been there? Your work and all that sort of stuff. But what I did this morning is I broke out my secret stash that no one else in the entire church knows about. They are kept in a humidor like expensive Cuban cigars, and uh, they are kept under perfect conditions so they always work when I need them to work. And so I think I'm pretty good about that. Why don't you just give, give me a thumbs up or something like that? Okay. And, um, but sadly, the stand is just completely skew-if on the whiteboard. So as much as I tried to break the mould, we're still dealing with something that looks very much substandard, but that's okay, we'll move on. Um, It'll be fixed by the time I get back from India when our team, who are all taking notes right now, order us the proper stand, and they're taking a massive hint. Cool. We're continuing. We've been talking as a church about uh, living together, growing together, and believing together. We've been talking about growing deeper roots in Jesus and deeper roots in the house of God. We've been talking about expanding our lives and addressing the barriers to the fullness of life that we might experience in Jesus. And we've been talking about our faith, about stretching our faith and believing for more. How many people know God responds to faith? Let me get a much better amen than that, just to wake yourself up this morning. He does. God is not just moved by need, but God's hand is moved by faith. And Jesus, one of his most common statements when dealing with people was that their faith activated something in God. That point of connection moved the hand of Jesus and moved the power of God. And how many people know Alice Springs needs people believing that God will move in Alice Springs? How many people know our world needs people believing that God will move in our world? Our church needs people who will believe God will move in our church. Can I get an amen? Amen. And so uh, we need to stretch our faith a little bit. Hey, I'd love to see you at our prayer meeting tonight. If you're not a normal Sunday night church person, uh, then become become a temporary one just for tonight and join us for our encounter night. If you know someone who's sick, bring them along because we're going to spend an unhurried time laying hands on the sick. If you know someone with challenges, write their prayer request down for us and give us something. We're going to soak it in prayer and cover it in prayer. But we need you to join us. You know, last I checked in my Bible, prayer wasn't just the job of the pastor, but was the job of kind of the whole church. Can I get like a, you can just give me a mumbled amen so you're not committing yourself to anything. So you go, amen, amen. Give me like a pinky wave of testimony or something like that. Good. Okay. So I'd love to see you there. So we're going to stretch. And one of the things we've been doing over the last couple of weeks is we've been talking about this thing about deepening our roots. And we've been looking at our ficus plants, which are not dead yet. And everybody said, thank you, Pastor Ben, for keeping Daniel Tifi away from those plants. That's right. And uh, they're not dead. And I'll tell you why. They're not dead because they are being watered and nourished the right stuff. They are getting the right exposure environmentally and nutritionally. They are being fed and their roots are being watered and fed. They're being fertilized. The light, they're being exposed to the right amount of light, which is then photosynthesized into life. And it's a great metaphor, actually a metaphor that you will find all the way through the Bible about Christian life and Christian growth. That also what we feed on, what our roots go down into and entangulate in, that's not a word, but I just made it up, what they entangle in, then, then that will end up translating into fruit that we bear. The roots we grow turns into the fruit that we bear. Everybody say root systems. Root systems. 
equal fruit systems, okay? And so we've been talking about this idea of feeding on the right stuff, and we've noted the observation, you know, you really are what you eat, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Andrew, welcome back. Um, you are what you eat. And last week we began with this scripture passage from Paul's letter to Timothy, his second letter to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16. And we're going to put it up on the board. Uh, we started sort of shambling through this scripture verse, just splashing around in it a little bit. And uh, we are going to put it up on the board again. And uh, here's what it says. All scripture is God, what? And is useful, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. Why? Let's have a look at the next bit. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped. Partially equipped? Thoroughly. Just a little bit equipped. Thoroughly. What about like, you know, like a little bit of the way there? Thoroughly, thoroughly equipped for a couple of good works. Every. For how many? Every. For every good Work. It's a powerful phrase, that word, good work, in the Bible. It's a recurring theme from Genesis through to Revelation. And it talks about the realization of God's heavenly plans colliding with planet Earth. It's an amazing idea. And we want to be thoroughly equipped for everything that God wants to do in us and through us. Who could say amen to that? Amen. Last week, we talked about the beginning of that passage. Let's go back to verse 16. It says this, that all scripture is God breathed. And we made the observation that the translation from Gleason Archer, that famous Bible scholar was that it is breathed out by God. Some translations might say inspired. And in fact, there's a whole bunch of writing on the Christian doctrine of inspiration and why scripture is different to any other amazing piece of writing like Lord of the Rings or whatever you're into reading, biology or something like that. But scripture is of a different quality to anything that's ever been written because it is breathed by God. And we made the observation together. Well, if it's breathed out by God, God, it should be breathed in by me. Who could say amen to that? So when I open scripture, I am encountering mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation from the creator of the universe, and I'm having the life of God enter me by downloading the software of heaven. It also says it's useful, and we made the observation that useful is an ancient word that means profitable. And it's an ancient picture of a king or a merchant or a thief storing up a treasure house full of gold and silver and treasures in the dungeon of their castle. And what that really means is that they've heaped up their treasure. And so when it says scripture is useful, it really means scripture can be heaped up like profits. It's profitable. You can save it up. So when we put it inside us, over time, the breathing in of scripture and the meditation and the study and the reading and the digesting of God's word has a cumulative effect on my life, just like profit does in a business. You could only sell one thing and make a $1 profit. And would you get excited about $1 profit? Would you get excited if you did it a million times? I think you would. Okay, there's a cumulative effect over time, even if it seems only small, the fact that it adds up and it adds up and it adds up. How many accountants are in the room? Love the idea of compound interest, compound interest. When it comes to accounting and spreadsheets, I am compoundedly uninterested. But uh, there are people out there that love spreadsheets and admin and numbers. And one of my daughters, she's like a mathlete. She loves it. And um, I don't know, we must have dropped her when she was young. It's okay, though. It's okay. <laughs> It's profitable, it's useful, it stocks up over time. And for teaching, and we noted that that word particularly is like instruction. Just like when you get something from Ikea and there are no instructions, it comes flat packed and you have one Allen key to sort out five billion pieces of stuff. Happy or sad face? Angry, frustrated face. 
Yes, and so uh, it's profitable. So today we're going to move on. If you want to get the detail of that, you can get our podcast from last week or download it off our church website, find us on Spotify or something else like that to hear last week's teaching. But today we pick up. It's useful for not only teaching. Let's just go back to that verse again just for one second, gang. Sorry. Let's pick it up. It's, teach, it's, it's useful not just for teaching, but look at these next three words, rebuking, correcting, and training. Let's say it together. Rebuking, rebuking. correcting, correcting. And, training. and training. Okay. Now, it's saying that Scripture is suitable for these three things. Let's talk about this word rebuking. If I say to you that you're going to be rebuked, give me a little look of the facial expression that will come upon your face. Let's see. Some of you are just smiling at me. It's like, wow, you're really happy to be rebuked. Come on. What, okay, let's say you're going to rebuke me. I know you've been dreaming of it. So come on, give us a, show me the look on your face when you come and finally give me a piece of your mind and rebuke me. Oh, you're giving me looks of compassion. You're just acting, guys. You're all lying. Well, when you think about this word rebuking, maybe you think about someone yelling at you. Maybe you think about someone rousing on you. Maybe you think about someone grousing at you or something like this. Think of a frown, maybe. Who thinks of a frown? Who thinks of, like, the raised eyebrows? Who thinks of Greta Thunberg? How dare you? (laughs) Who thinks about that? Yeah? Everyone was so surprised at Greta, except for the people who've ever lived with a 16-year-old girl in their house. And then that's all we hear all day long. You have stolen my dreams. Change the Wi-Fi password. You have crushed my dreams, stolen my childhood. Eat your vegetables, go to school. How dare you? And so we think about being rebuked. Most of the time, that's a negative word to us, isn't it? Be honest with me. Who likes being rebuked? Okay, so sometimes when you read this, oh, Scripture's suitable for rebuking. Oh, no, maybe that would make you just emotionally or intuitively gravitate away from this type of idea. So I've got some good news for you today. Are you ready for it? Is everybody ready for it? Or is it only like these three people here and one over there that said yes? Okay, good. This Greek word for rebuking, I've written it on the board of destiny here. I'm sorry it's going to be difficult for some of you to see, is this word, elegmon. Everybody say, elegmon. Say like, eh, elegmon. That's good, that's good. Okay, here's what it means. It means inner conviction. Inner conviction, okay? Now, you know what inner conviction is because the most important things in life that you will do or that you will achieve gladly do not come from external conviction. They come from inner conviction. Who's ever had somebody try to make them adjust their diet? Anybody? You know my stance on this, people, because I've been married for 20 years to a woman who is nothing short of a food Nazi. And uh, so she has many times tried to adjust my diet. I come home and my favourite chocolate ice cream has been washed with hot water down the sink because it's better for everybody if it's not in the house. (laughs) And you know what I do? I go back and I buy single-serving ice creams and I bury them under the frozen kale chips in the back of the freezer, (laughs) something like that. What about when you, uh, I, I used to be quite a smoker, quite a drinker, quite an addict in all sorts of ways. And I remember my wife begged me since I met her, basically, to give up smoking. And she would say the same thing all the time. The first objection is it. Yeah, that's what she'd say. The second one is over the long term, it will. Yep. And the third one is if we bring children into the house, we don't want them. 
breathing it in. Okay. So look, if you're struggling with that issue, you get nothing but compassion from me. That's for sure. Cause it is a difficult one. So, so I was quite, and so for years and years and years, when I was um, dating Danielle, then after I married Danielle, then like straight on the honeymoon, you know, um, she was really at me to give up that smoking. And I actually tried because she applied pressure. Now she is at the back of the room. So why don't you just give her a judgmental look that just, <sighs> let's all just shake our heads. Okay, now, here's the problem. Danny L, she wanted me to change my lifestyle choices because she likes me or doesn't like me. Well, back then she liked me. Now things are changing because I keep talking about her in my sermons. Um, but because she loves me. So because she loves me, she wants the best for me. And for her, the best for me would have involved significant change in my life, particularly to do with my self-harming behaviours like addictions and all that sort of stuff. Are you with me? So she wasn't like wanting me to die or wanting me to smell or wanting me to whatever. She was wanting me not to be unhealthy, but she wanted me to change. Now, I tried many times to give up smoking because she put the pressure on me. Just one more time. Give her a glance of like, okay, good. Now, okay, I failed almost every time. Why did I fail almost every time? Because, my friends... I was responding not to an internal conviction, but to external pressure. And did you know, you can change a little bit because of external pressure, but you will never be transformed. You will never be transformed. Okay. This is called external motivation. This is you. As you can see, you are dressed as a Jedi. (laughs) This is you. This is external pressure, seeking change in your life. See how well my whiteboard markers work? Just turn the person next to you and say, I'm so impressed with this church. It's efficient as. <laughs> say it in a Kiwi accent. Efficient as. This is external pressure. And it's bearing down upon you, trying to make you do stuff. Now, you may succumb momentarily to that pressure but eventually your motivation to succumb to external pressure will wear off because it isn't something that transforms you it only changes what you do a little bit okay it is focused solely on externals external motivation external pressures okay this was Jesus problem with the Pharisees and the religious leaders because everything they did then you see the conflict in the gospels brought about by Jesus because everything the Pharisees and the religious people at the time advocated for was about an external change putting pressure on people so they would change so that they could be loved or socially acceptable or fit in in the temple or be loved by God and it was external, external, external and Jesus was so annoyed he said you know what you're just whitewashed tombs you're like on the inside dead and decaying but the outside you put all this effort into managing it Jesus said another thing he said you're not clean because you wipe the outside of a cup It's interesting, isn't it? What is in the cup then goes inside you. That's what makes you clean or unclean. And so Jesus understood you cannot change because of external pressure. Now, you and I, we have to always be careful because we live in families. We raise children. We have partners. We have friends. We have relationships. We're part of work cultures. We're part of a church culture. And God forbid that you and I misunderstand our faith and imagine that what it really is, is I'm the morality and behavior police around here. And my job is to make sure that everybody has my pressure put on them. So they're always doing the right things according to the way that I have designed it. You know what I'm saying? How many people 
don't want to be controlled by Pastor Ben. Yeah, every hand in the house should be up. Unless you've got my surname and then you should definitely give me a little bit more latitude. <laughs> External pressure. Now, this is how you change. And this is true from cognitive behavioural therapy to psychology. Let's say this is your brain. You wish it was that big. <laughs> this is your heart. What actually transforms a person and when is when whatever motivators they have start here and spreads to the rest of their life. And just in case you're not a cognitive person, I'm going to let you be emotional and say, or what is here? It starts inside you and it spreads, okay? It is internal. It is intrinsic is the formal language. It's something deep inside of you. Now, this is different because, see, what happened is one day I went to the wheelie bin and I had a brand new packet of cigarettes in my hand, Dunhill Blues I used to smoke. You can still feel it? No, okay. Um, <laughs> and I crunched up that brand new packet. It had one missing. I just finished smoking one. It was about 5 a.m. in the morning. Finished, I know, early, right? Finished, nice strong cup of coffee, a deep smoke. And I had this idea. I don't want to do this anymore. The problem is I was in my early 20s and even if I just ran upstairs, I would be like coughing up all sorts of the, all colours of the rainbow and really horrible. And I was imagining, you know, if I had kids right now, I wouldn't even be able to chase them around the house without a conniption. And I, something clicked in my heart. I said, I don't want to do this anymore. And so I stood at the wheelie bin and I crunched up in my hands the packet of cigarettes and I threw it in the bin and I shut the lid. And I've never had a cigarette ever again since. Yeah, weird, because I, I, tried, I tried to give up so many other times because Darth Vader wanted me to give up, okay? But what happened is something flicked in my soul, and instead of an external pressure to stop doing something, I developed an inner conviction. I was a new Christian at the time, and I was growing in all sorts of ways in my faith. And sure enough, lots of things had changed, because this is what I found after I became a Christian and began to walk with Jesus and study the Word and pray and worship God. I found that things I'd spent years of my life trying to adjust and trying to shift suddenly were implanted in me and grew from within me, and change became, can I say it this way, almost effortless? Almost. Like when I gave up those smokes. I'm not saying I was never tempted again, because I sure was. I'm not saying that today if I follow you down the street breathing a cigarette that I don't go, smells good, Neo. I'm not saying that. But what I'm telling you is I've never gone back to it again and I don't lay awake at night crying myself to sleep wishing for one. Does that make sense? But that's happened. That's just an example of how many different ways that's happened to me in my life. Can I tell you, when I was a new Christian, I could get worshipping God because the music was cool, the smoke machine, the lights were good. I could get prayer kind of because it's like, okay, I've got a shopping list of needs I'd like God to engage in. But this whole Bible reading and Bible study thing, I just didn't quite get it. You know what I'm saying? Do you know what I'm saying? I wasn't too keen. And it took me a while before I cracked my Bible cover open on my own and even tried to read it. Took me a lot longer to try to study it. Took me ages to sort of, you know, meditate on it and and pray about it. But this is what I found. I knew I was supposed to do it because people say, oh, you know, you should read your Bible. You should pray. You should, you should, you should, you should, you should. Okay. External pressure didn't change me. I knew I should. I tried it. I don't know. I'd fall asleep or there'd be something better on TV. Remember back in the day where you had to actually wait for something to come on the television channel to watch it? Um, 
and so, but then one day I was reading, I was actually studying this verse we're studying, all scripture is God breathed, and something clicked. You mean when I'm reading the Bible, what I'm doing is I'm inhaling God's software and giving the Holy Spirit software to work with to bring his power to bear to change my hard drive? Yeah, that's what's happening. And something clicked. And I suddenly had an inner desire to embrace and breathe in God's software so that my hardware could be reprogrammed. And my life began to change. And my life, you see, the difference is not external pressure. I did it because I should. Internal motivation. Deep inside, something of me wants this. Now, when Paul says that God's word is suitable for rebuking, the Greek word is this word, elegmon. And elegmon does, it's, rebuking is not really a good uh, translation. If you have a look at the other uh, different English translations of this ancient text, then they'll all translate it a different way because it's hard to get a handle on without a real good discussion about it. Because really what elegmon means is elegmon means inner conviction. It is conviction that starts here or here and spreads to the rest of your life. Now, here's the good news about that is it's not possible for you to sustain any type of transformation or even any type of habit. It's not even possible for you to feel contented and joyful in life unless your life is characterized more by the things that come from you being intrinsically motivated than things you are externally motivated by. Does that make sense? Now, if you've studied psychology in the room or counseling or this sort of stuff, you're an expert, you already know about this thing called intrinsic motivation, that it has to be born out of an internal desire. So how do I experience change? How do I make progress? How do I shift from something that's being shifted? I'm going to give you another example. I used to look at myself in the mirror every day, and as soon as I made eye contact with myself, the tape would begin replaying. Remember tapes? Any old people like me? If you're young, the MP3 would begin playing, the audio file. And as soon as I saw myself, everything everyone had ever said to me in life that was negative would replay as soon as I looked at myself in the mirror. You're a loser. You're an idiot. You don't deserve to be alive. I was bullied by all sorts of people, by carers, by family members, by loved ones. Went to school. Then I was bullied. That's because I grew up in a house with three sisters and I found myself in an all-boys school. It was like being released into the Lord of the Flies film set. And I was broken, man. So even in my 20s, when I looked myself in the mirror, I thought, I wish I was dead. And I could not break the habit of saying, God, if you're real, let me get hit by a bus today. So then I become a believer and I start, and I definitely experienced some transformation, definitely experienced the joy of God, definitely experienced the freedom of God. But at the same time, I still couldn't break the habit of waking up and saying, God, if you're real, let me get hit by a bus today. It was such an ingrained thought and desire and this suicidal tendency and the mild, the depression was lessening, but it was still there. And the anxiety was still there and I'd wake up in the middle of the night with panic attacks. And then over time, what I noticed is that I couldn't change just because I felt guilty or ashamed of my feelings or my faulty beliefs. I knew they were faulty. I knew God loved me. I knew it's a good idea not to get prayed to get hit by a bus. I wasn't turning up to the church prayer meetings and slipping in my request about that. But what happened? Over time, as God's word was implanted in my life, the inner convictions that come from God's word began to replace the inner convictions that were already in me. Make sense? Okay, so this is you. Again, as you can see, you're dressed as a Jedi. And you have inner convictions in your life. And those inner convictions are the reason why without thinking, without setting out to, without trying, without, um, even without much effort, you will fall into behavioural patterns. Now, some of them are good and some of them are harmful. And it's the harmful ones that are going to cause you the most shame, the most pain, the most issues, the most guilt. Maybe they'll be, end up being life-controlling or life-destroying. 
And you'll try to change. I know I shouldn't think like this. I know I shouldn't do this. I know I shouldn't feel like this. And you'll beat yourself up and you'll feel shame. And then you'll even come to church sometimes and you'll hear preaching and you'll leave leave feeling worse than when you came in. Because what you would do is you will interpret that the preaching is just another set of external pressures telling you to change. But you feel like you can't change because your internal motivators are set. And Paul says, Scripture is God-breathed, so breathe it in. And it's profitable, which means you can stock up its effects over time. And it's profitable for teaching, which means God provides instruction for your life. And then he says, our translation says, it's good for rebuking. But what it really means is it's good for developing inner conviction. And if I can internalise and download what God's Word says about me and you and life and the world and the universe and everything, even the number 42, then what I can do is I can implant. God, the Holy Spirit comes and implants inner convictions in my life. The Christian faith is flimsy and powerless if for you it is only an experience of external pressures reshaping you so you can be socially acceptable to a religious club. But where it's powerful is where the contents of God's word comes and I develop inner convictions about things. And more importantly, that divinely breathed inner convictions replace my broken inner convictions. Are you with me? Some of us in this room, we've wondered why we just can't change, why we just can't shift, why we can't stop feeling this, thinking this, remembering this, experiencing this. Okay? And so what you need to do is you need to feed more on God's word and shift. So here's the thing. Change is possible. Everybody say it. Change is possible. possible. But change is not possible if out of a sense of guilt or pain or obligation, external pressures, you just go, all right, I I really don't want to do this, but I know I should do this. Okay? You cannot, when we were in in Brisbane in Fortitude Valley, I was strongly involved in dealing with alcoholics and drug addicts because I was one. And I always found that you can never get an addict to change if they don't want to change. In fact, we used to say it like this. You can never get delivered from your friend. You have to get to the point where internally, deep in your heart, in your mind, in your gut, you want change. And then when you want it, you can actually have it. So here's the painful truth for you and me to swallow. And it's not said critically because I've walked this journey, my friends. The painful truth is most of the time, if we can't change, it's because we don't want change. It's not that you can't change. Brace yourself, I'm going to say something nasty. It's that you won't change. And that is the beginning of empowerment with drug addicts, with alcoholics, with all sorts of offenders, whether it's domestic violence or rage attack or or, or, or rageaholics, shopaholics, streakers. The truth of the matter is, listen, empowerment begins when you tell yourself this. It's not that I can't change, it's that I won't change. Once I replace can't with won't, then I realise it's a matter of me now making... I'm I'm not judging you, I'm not being critical, friends. I've walked this journey and you know what? I wish someone told me this when I was 10 years old before I started drinking myself to sleep at 11 and continued till my mid-20s. I wish somebody told me this when I was younger because I lived all this time thinking I can't and no one ever explained this to me. But here's the thing. God's word written 2,000 years ago already contains within it all the secrets they're discovering in modern psychology to help you reprogram your life and get help and get wholeness. And they dovetail and they harmonise so incredibly well because Paul 2,000 years ago wrote this phrase that God's word is good 
for Elegmon. It's good for developing inner conviction. And inner conviction is the only way you can change. So I want to invite you to continue to feed on God's word and open your heart up to God's word, open your heart up to God's Holy Spirit so that you can begin to see some change. Maybe you're in this place and you're not a Christian or maybe you once walked with Jesus but you haven't been anymore. Maybe you even felt like, oh, it's just like religion and rules and that sort of stuff. But what we're really talking here is a life-changing relationship where something happens that is what I'm, how I'm wired. What is inside me is dramatically changed and shifted so that then the externals of my life can also begin to change. Remember this phrase, inside out? All good transformation only happens from the inside out. If you want to give up sugar, how many people have read that book, I Quit Sugar? And then quit, how many people quit sugar? Everyone with the frown on their faces, yeah. Um, so you could have just, someone could have guilted you into it and told you, don't eat it, it's bad for you. But if you develop an inner conviction about it, you find yourself capable of it. Isn't that true? Okay, we're going to go quick now. And the, the, next, the verse then says this, not just that it's suitable for rebuking. Here's the next word, correcting. Everybody say correcting. Okay, correcting is this Greek word, epenorthosin. Let's all say it, epenorthosin. Okay, now on the whiteboard, you might not be able to see it depending on where you're sitting. I've got a drawing of a spinal column here. I'll add a pelvis to it. How many people are glad I'm not treating you? Okay, this is a spinal column. Now, when I was younger, I exploded two discs. It was my L, what was it, my L4S1? And then another one up here somewhere. I can't remember what it was. Okay. I exploded these two things. And I couldn't walk and I couldn't bend and I couldn't move because of the severe swelling and the extrusion of the disc that had gone down into my spinal cord. So I was in deep agony and I was kind of walking around like Kaiser Soze. Have you seen the movie? So what happened is I had to go to a specific type of surgeon to see if they could fix what was wrong with me. The surgeon was an orthopedic surgeon. Anyone ever seen one? Any orthopedic surgeons in the room? An orthopedic surgeon is a medical specialist that helps you with problems in the muscular skeletal part of your life. And what they do is basically, here's what it is. When your bones and your muscles and your nervous system are wonky, they straighten stuff out. Are you with me? If you have wonky feet, this is not said judgmentally, by the way, so don't feel bad. But if you have wonky feet, you can go to a, um, to a podiatrist or, a, or some type of therapist. And what they will do is they'll give you something to put inside your shoe that when you walk around, it straightens out your feet. And those are called orthotics. Orthotics. Now, the word ortho, an orthopedic surgeon, orthotics that go in my shoe, ortho. It comes from the Greek word, which means to straighten out, to straighten out. And when stuff goes wonky... And then when it goes wonky, it ain't good for you. When it goes wonky, it's not healthy for you. So when it goes wonky, it's got to get straightened out. Are you with me? Okay. So this is what Paul said. Paul's word is good for correcting, and he uses the word epinothosin. Look at this word, orthosin, sorry, epinothosin. Orthosin is where the word orthopedics or orthotics comes from, and it means to straighten out. So Paul says, listen to this. When you're wonky, God's word straightens you out a little bit. And there's all sorts of things that go wrong with us internally. So, you know, it's one thing to have, to have a wonky spine. But, you know, there's all sorts of stuff inside you and me that goes wonky, isn't there? I've been talking to you about mine. Maybe you've been thinking about yours while we've been talking today. 
And here's the thing, what, what, what offers us so much hope in God's word is not that Jesus stands afar and points the finger and goes, I can't believe how sinful you are. But actually that Jesus comes to die a sacrificial, substitutionary death to exchange his life for our brokenness so that he can give us the gift of his life. Does that make sense? Why? Because Jesus already understands we're broken and God is not surprised when he encounters our brokenness. But in fact, what he does is he then gives us his word and his spirit when we say yes to the gospel so that what is wonky can be straightened out by God's word. Isn't it true you and I, we've got stuff inside us that needs to be straightened out? Yeah. Most of the problems you and I have, something's going on inside us. Something's going on inside us. Viktor Frankl, the famous author who was a Jewish man stuck in a horrible, dark concentration camp, wrote a whole volume of research based on the fact that everything can be taken from you. Everything. And he lived it except for your capacity to choose in any given situation. And what's amazing, he developed a whole therapy out of that. Well, how come people, when their capacity to choose exists, don't make good use of their capacity to choose? And the Bible answer to that is we make all sorts of wonky choices because inside us is all sorts of wonky stuff. If you're not a colloquial Australian English speaker, wonky means bent out of shape, funny, a bit off, skew-if. Does that make sense? So Paul says God's word is good because it straightens us out. Put it in. Let it work. Download the software. Meditate on it. Feed on it. Okay, here's the last one. Pay down. Good for training. Good for training. Everybody say training. All right. Actually, this word training means in the ancient world, you'd take a young child and you wanted them to grow into a healthy, functional adult. So they'd be given to a mentor who would essentially raise them. That mentor would raise them and teach them everything they need to know about life. And when they became an adult, the mentor would bring them back to their father in the Greek world, in the Roman world. The mentor would bring them back to their father and say, okay, they're ready. And then the, the family would take them through an adoption ceremony, an adult rite of passage, where they would no longer be seen as a child, but would be seen as an adult. This is the same thing you see in the parable of the prodigal son, where the son comes back and the father puts a ring on his finger and a robe on him and sandals on his feet. It's an adoption ceremony. And that would happen in every family when the child was deemed to have been fully equipped and trained by its mentor. And of course, if you think about that in life, isn't there just so many ways in life we wish we knew what we were supposed to do? How many times have you said to yourself, man, I knew, wish I knew where to turn here. I wish I had someone to show me the way. I wish I had someone to give me direction. Maybe it's in the stuff that we've been talking about today. I wish I knew how to get, um, you know, I wish I knew how to develop inner conviction which would truly transform me. I wish I could get stuff straightened out in my life. And Paul says, God's word is good for this. God's word is good for this. But here's why, because it is good for this. It'll train you. God's Word can be like the mentor you never had. God's Word can be like the teacher that you never had. And it'll comment and give you life-giving advice and instruction on all sorts of situations which will change you. What's important is to take it in and let it act on you. Here's the last bit. He says, So that the man of God, the woman of God, the servant of God, would be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Everyone say complete. Complete. Again, it's so funny. I wonder how many medical people must have been in the church in Ephesus because when Paul writes to Timothy, he's using a lot of medical terms here. 
This word complete is the word atios. Atios. And this is what atios means. Imagine this is your thigh. And imagine this is your shin bone. And the, the thigh bone's connected to the... Yeah, is that right? What's it actually called? What's the medical term for it? The femur. See that root of rue in the song, isn't it? The femur is connected to the the tibia. Yeah, okay. So, listen. You've got your you've got your femur and you've got your tibia, okay? And in between them is a joint. Okay? And then you've got ligaments and muscles and skin and all that sort of stuff that goes over the top. If I, I do martial arts training sometimes. And so sometimes we practice, what would I do if you were going to murder my wife and children right in front of me? And there's all sorts of stuff. And so only one of my options, one of my options when I've like exhausted prayer and rebuking you in the name of Jesus, casting out demons, turning the other cheek, loving you in Jesus' name, preaching the gospel. When I've exhausted all those sort of things, maybe the final one is to give you a downward leg chop, making use of pelvic rotation to dislocate your knee or break it in fact okay now I wouldn't do that to anyone in this church unless you try to murder my family but then okay so imagine if that happens and you might have seen you might have seen it on YouTube or seen it on UFC or something like that where someone just gives a really good and then the the leg goes have you ever seen that and what does it do it dislocates the knee or, or maybe worse okay so imagine this is dislocated now good idea or bad idea okay it's incredibly excruciating to have a joint dislocated isn't that true have you ever had it or broken okay and so if it's dislocated though what's amazing is if it's dislocated it is excruciating but a doctor can what relocate it and then when they relocate it what happens to the pain it radically decreases. You'll still be tender. You'll require some rehab, some strapping, some wrapping, all this sort of stuff. But the thing is, you will go from being 10 out of 10 to excruciating, debilitating, life hijacking pain. And when it is relocated, you will experience a sudden drop in that pain and you will go, oh my gosh, let's never do that again. Okay, dislocation. When Paul says that God's Word is good for equipping that you would be complete, thoroughly equipped. It's a translation of this phrase, artios. And this phrase, artios, means to restore a joint. It's a medical term. And obviously because in Roman culture, people were always getting their joints out of whack because there was lots of combat and stuff. Okay, So imagine that if you've got a joint dislocated and you're trying to live your life and it's wonky and it's bent out of shape and it's problematic and, and, and your mind's just consumed by it It's making your decisions for you because it's affecting the whole way you walk, isn't it? But then imagine if you could get rehab. Imagine if you could see an orthopedic surgeon. Imagine if it could be straightened out. Imagine if it could be relocated and then you'd be fixed up. See all these metaphors stacking upon each other in this passage. So Paul says that the reason you need God's Word because it develops in a conviction, it straightens you out, it trains you, it educates you, it instructs you, it mentors you, but also... It sets your joints back in alignment. Again, inside us, there's all sorts of stuff that's dislocated, isn't there? Maybe stuff's happened to you. Maybe you've been unwise yourself and you damaged yourself more. Maybe you've been victim of horrible things. All of that was my story. 
And I can tell you 20 years later, after walking with Jesus and getting God's Word into me, stuff's been straightened out. Joints that were dislocated all this time later, they're back in place. God has worked in my life. God has restored it. God has healed me. My prayer for you, my friend, is that you will feed on God's Word because it is so good for you. It'll heal you. It'll train you. It'll educate you. It'll help you develop internal motivation for the things you really want to see happen in life and you might be mystified why they don't happen. Stuff's out of place. It can join it back into place. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes all over this room today? I pray for you, my friend. I pray right now because you've been sitting under the influence of God's Word. You've been hearing it. You've been listening. Now I pray that you would let your soul breathe it in. That you would accept it. That you would say, God, let your Word work in me. I pray for you, my friend, that the presence and power of the Holy Spirit that is in this place would be something you begin to invite to work in your life. You would say, God, would you let the Holy Spirit take the Word of God and work it into my life? Lord, help me develop inner conviction. That's what some of us need to say right now. Maybe you're facing unique challenges and you're aware of what they are. And the problem is there's been nothing inside you helping you change because everything's been working against you. I pray for you that you would begin to ask, God, would you help me? Would you let your word build some inner conviction in my life? God, would you straighten me out? Would you begin to straighten out what's wrong, what's out of shape, what's bent out of shape, what's wonky in my life? Would you help me, Father, send your Holy Spirit right now? Come on, don't make this my prayer, friend. Make this your prayer. Why don't you make it your prayer? In your own words right now, say, God, come. God, come and straighten out stuff in my life. You know what needs to be straightened out more than likely. You know what you've been wrestling through. You know what's been making your walk weird because it's been out of joint in your soul, in your heart, in your mind. Father, I pray today that your word would come and do us good, but not only today, but you would develop in this people under the sound of my voice this morning an appetite to soak in your word, breathe it in, meditate on it, marinate on it, listen to it, hear it preached, read it, pray it through. Father, I pray that people who are mindful of their own set of challenges this morning, you would come and just give them your healing grace. All these words we've looked at, they're healing words, Father. They're not words that condemn and point the finger and criticise and slap us and tell us we must change. They're healing words that say what we need is we need the deep gracious healing of a loving God who wants to come like a skillful physician, like a skillful surgeon and come and, and adjust us. So I thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love in this place at work in us today, Father close this meeting but while every head is bowed and every eye is closed let me ask you a question my friend do you remember a time when you drew a line in the sand of your life and said God of the universe no matter where I've been going to no matter where I've been coming from my answer is yes to the gospel I say yes to Jesus sacrificial death which was a sacrifice on my behalf to not only remove my sin but remove the pollution of it the penalty of it the power of it to break it to kill it 
and also to offer me His new life that when Jesus walked out of the tomb and says, now anyone who comes to me and says yes to the Gospel can live a new life. Well, I want to say yes. My friend, can you remember a time where you drew a line in the sand of your life and said, God, my answer is yes to that. Bring me into that new life. Bring me into that forgiven life. Bring me into that healed life. Bring me into that restored life. Well, I can remember 20 years ago in a room, in a meeting just like this, hearing the gospel message and drawing that line in the sand of my life and saying yes for the first time. What about you? Have you done it before? I want to pray for a group of people here who are saying, Pastor Ben, that's me today. I need to draw that line in the sand of my life. I need to turn around from wherever I've been going to and coming from and turn to God and say, my answer is yes. There's another group of people in this room today and maybe you've said yes once upon a time, but you haven't been walking with Jesus. You haven't been following Him. You got off the path and you know that God is drawing you with His love and His goodness and His kindness today. And He's drawing you and He's saying, come on, my child, my son, my daughter, that's your shot. It's time for you to draw that line in the sand of your life and turn to me. Begin walking with me. Begin living a new life. I'm going to close the service with a prayer for those two groups of people who say, Ben, include me in the prayer for the first time ever or the first time in way too long. Now, my friend, if we all put up our spiritual antenna in this room today and we all have one, many of us will sense the warm, gracious, loving presence of an amazing, restoring God talking to people's hearts. Here's what it sounds like. That's you. That's you, son. That's you, daughter. Come home to me. Say yes to me. And not because of the words I'm saying, but because God is drawing you this morning and you're here and you need to say yes to the gospel message. I'm going to pray in just a moment. Now, here's what I want to do. I'm going to leave you in your seat while every head is bowed and every eye is closed. I want you to look at me and shoot your hand up in the air as a sign to God, but also so I know who I'm praying for. Say, Ben, that's me. I want to say yes to Jesus. I'm about to pray. If you want to be included in my prayer, shoot your hand up right now and say, yep, Ben, that's me. I want to say yes to Jesus. First time ever or for the first time in a long time. going to give you a moment. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Who else in this room? Hand up in the air. Yep, Pastor Ben, I want to say yes. First time ever or for the first time in a long time. Get me back on the journey. Get me walking with God. Father, I thank you for people in this room today saying yes to you. Thank you. People are turning around. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, my friend. Yes, I can see your hand too. going to give you one last moment. Don't miss your shot today. Don't miss your shot if you need to get on the path. One more moment. Hand up in the air. Look at me. Yep, Ben, that's me. Include me in the prayer. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Father, I thank you that people in this room today are making decisions to say yes to you. We thank you that you're turning them over to you, that they're crossing over that line, being drawn by you. They turn from where they were going. Now they're coming towards you. Now they're walking with you. Make them your child, Father. Give them your grace. Give them your change. Give them your transformation. Thank you for it in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen and amen. Hey, listen. Come back to our prayer meeting tonight. We're going to be laying hands on people. We're going to be believing and we need you to join your faith with us. And if you've got an issue you want prayer for, it's going to be a real good night to come and get prayed for. And so for that reason, the prayer team are not praying for you this morning. Come back and get prayer tonight. God bless you. We love you. Amen. Thank you for joining us in the podcast. For more information about Desert Life Church, go to desertlifechurch.org or check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day and remember, you belong here.